What is up, B-Town? How you guys doing? Good? A little chilly out there today. Um, my name is Greg Foote. I am the uh, pastor of Family Ministries at our Norton campus, and it's a huge honor to be able to be with you this morning, um, and so I'm excited. Uh, we're continuing a series on good goals, uh, bad gods, and so we've, um, and it's kind of appropriate this time of year. I mean, obviously, we're middle of February, so this past week, we celebrated Single Awareness Day on Thursday, and uh, so that was Thursday, and so now we're heading towards the spring, and if you're a baseball fan, spring training is beginning, and so that means uh, spring is coming. And I was at Norton High School this past week, and on the announcements, they talked about track and field practice, baseball, softball, so spring is coming soon. But it's still towards the beginning of the, the year, and usually towards the beginning of the year, there's um, people make resolutions, and they're routines to, you know, to make goals. And so one of the different goals they, they make throughout the year, and I read an article this past week that usually right around February 8th is when people's goals, that they, their New Year's resolutions, they drop off. So if you've made it past February 8th, you're doing well. If you dropped off, hey, you're, you're, not, you're not alone, okay? So know that you're, you're fine that way. So we're going to continue this series this morning talking about good goals, bad gods. Here's the thing about... Uh, um, goals though when goals which are good become ultimate they are my gods and uh, in the old testament there's a section of scripture it's called the ten commandments and the first commandment says this um, you shall have no other gods before me um, and so god put that in the commandments knowing that we're, we're so prone to put other things first in our lives and he wanted all the nation of israel and us to know that uh, nothing should come um, before him. Gods are good things that have become ultimate things in my life. Um, gives me purpose. It takes priority and ignites the most passion in my life. I will rearrange my life um, for, for the things that are most important in my life. You, you notice that in your own life, like the things that are most important, you're going to rearrange your schedule, your time, your priorities, your money, your finances to what's most important in my life. Um, my interests can turn into idols. So the things that I'm most interested in can, can turn into idols. Um, goals that we have, maybe we set some goals, but those goals can be so, take so much priority on our lives that they can uh, become, become gods. Things like money, uh, success, health, um, our bodies, sports, power, accumulating stuff, pretty, pretty much near anything can become gods in our lives. Um, our hearts can be idle factories. They can produce just things to, to, to elevate what's most important. And we can just, you know, we want to do this and create the most important things in our life. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, uh, the prophet Ezekiel said, the people he was talking to, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Um, and so to the people he was writing to in that day, and it's the same here in the 21st century America, it's so easy that we can put uh, things to take priority in our lives um, to, uh, to become gods. Um, identifying and exposing the things in our lives that have become gods is easy and obvious. So we start thinking about things in our lives that become, you know, gods in our lives. It's easy and obvious. The things that, you know, we can put in our lives, maybe it's, you know, um, uh, sports or power or whatever it is, we can, we can do that. But what if our idol was not a something? What if our idol was a someone? So instead of thinking about, you know, putting, putting stuff um, in, in place of God, what if, what if the, the something is a someone when a person becomes my idol? When a relationship 
becomes my God. When I get so infatuated with, you know, elevating a person or making sure this person can fulfill all the needs that I have in my life. And that, that, can, that person or that relationship can become a God in my life. And it, it's, not, it's, it's subtle. And here's the thing. Some, some of the, some, when I say that, some of this is easy and obvious. Like example, we have Amer- the American Idol mentality, right? I mean, we have this TV show, American Idol. Any American Idol watchers out there? Yeah, some of you, awesome, yeah. The next season's get ready to uh, ramp up, so get ready. Um, but we get excited to, to vote on who the, the best singer is. And you text in your votes, and you, you, we, we idolize these singers, and they, they don't go these tours and all that stuff. Um, not only do we do the American Idol mentality, we have sports stars that we idolize. You know, we have Frankie Lindor and Baker Mayfield. We, some people, we, we, we idolize our sports stars. And not only do we have these sports stars, but we have one sports star known as the king. He, he proclaims himself as the king, the, the best basketball player. And he's pretty darn good. We miss him in Cleveland right now. Um, but so he, he uh, the king. And another, another way we uh, talk about sports stars is the goat, right? The greatest of all time, right? This is, this is Tom Brady, a little goat head on there. He has six Super Bowls now, and he's been to a bunch. And so people think that he is the greatest of all time. And people idolize, like, oh, my goodness, if Tom Brady retires, what's going to happen to the Patriots and all that stuff? And not only, not only in sports do we idolize it, but we also idolize it in music. You know, we have country music stars, and we have pop stars, um, so we, we, it's so easy just to, to get so caught up in, in their lives. We follow them on Instagram. We, you know, we, we read little blogs about them. And, and you know, E! Entertainment Tonight, we, we watch that stuff in People Magazine. What if it's not only those kind of people, but what about leaders, politicians, activists, and other leaders? Um, we can idolize people we don't really even know. Like we think, well, I, I, I know this, this leader. I know this activist. I, I read her biography. Therefore, me, her and I, we're BFFs. Like we're, we're close. We're mesmerized with the part of the life that we, we see. We say, oh man, they're, they're amazing. Um, we're, obl- we're oblivious to the part that we don't see. There's so many people that we can idolize that we don't really even know most of their life. On occasion, when we can see into those parts that we that, that disappoints us because we're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. I didn't know they were like that. I, I never and didn't realize that because we don't know them. Now, obviously, world leaders, that's one, one phase. We also do this in the church. We can idolize pastors and religious leaders. We can, we can read their books. We can, we can listen to their sermons and we can go to their churches and we can idolize uh, church leaders. And you think, oh man, I know all about these, these church leaders. But again, it's, like it, th- those, it's the same kind of thing with other leaders. We don't necessarily know them. We just, we can, if, we, if they get in the wrong place, we can, they can become idols. But okay, so those might be easy you know, to think about, you know, American Idol, sports stars, um, pastors, leaders. But what if, what if we think more, let's, let's take it down to where we're at here in Barberton, Ohio. What happens when we idolize people close to us? People we actually have a relationship with. People that we love, like our spouse, maybe it's our kids, our parents, boyfriend, girlfriend, or the one boyfriend or girlfriend we wish we had it's more subtle isn't it um it can become more damaging and it can become gods and we don't even know it and all this is confusing if you think about it because in the bible in the book of matthew there's a there's a passage of scripture when jesus is asked to boil down like all the all the commandments boil them down into um what 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 is the greatest commandment so let's let's look at this together this is found in matthew 22 
37 to 40. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. So Jesus here is, is saying to, to love people, right? I mean, he's, he's saying that. He's saying, you know, love God, and he's saying love people. So isn't it essentially the right thing to, to love people in our life? That, yes, the answer is yes. Love God and love people. This is what matters most. Um, but the order matters, okay? So obviously we need to love God and love people, but the order matters. I say it this way. When I love God first, I love people more. When I love people first, I love God less. And subsequently, I love people in my life less. I'll say that again. When I love God first, I love people more. When I love people first, I love God less, and subsequently, I love people in my life less. It's a good goal to love my spouse. I'm married to one wife. Her name is Shannon. We've been married for over 15 years, um, and I love my spouse. It's a good goal to love my spouse, and if you are married, it's a good goal to love your spouse. If you have children, and I have two, two children, um, a son, Lucas, and a daughter, Callie, and I love my kids, it's a good goal to love your children. It's a good goal if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend to, to, to take care of them, to love them. That, that's a good, a good thing. And if you have friends, and all of us have friends, it's, good, it's a good goal to love your friends. I'm not saying, you know, to, to, to not do that. But here's the thing. These relationships become my God when they become ultimate. What I mean by that is this. When I expect those relationships to satisfy all my deepest longings and needs... When I look to a relationship to define me, that relationship has become my idol. When I, when I find worth in the relationship that I have. When I care more about the applause of certain people um, and their approval than I do God's, um, that relationship has become a, um, my God. When I ignore or I change what God says to keep or get that relationship, I'm making them an idol. So it... It's, so it's more subtle. I mean, obviously we talk about, you know, things in our life that we put as idols, but relationship idols are more subtle. And all of a sudden, when, when we, we want the approval of other people or, you know, the, the accolades, that's when those relationships, those people can become a God in our lives. And we don't even realize it. So we're going to look at a story. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. And I want you, um, we're going to look at, so I want everybody to turn to Genesis chapter 22. Okay, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, so if you open your Bible, Genesis chapter 22, or if you've got your Bible app, it's the very first chapter. So you can open that up, put it in your lap, and we're going we're gonna to unpack it here just in a, a few moments. Before we get to Genesis 22, I need to set the stage for how, what, what's going on before Genesis 22. So we're not just dropping into to this story and like, what, this makes no sense. Because I'll give you a warning, the story we're going to look at today is a head-scratcher. You're going to read it going, I don't quite understand it. And, and you have to stare at it for a while. And we'll, we'll watch God, will, it'll make it pop, okay? So, the, kind of what's going on here, Genesis 15, to, uh, chap, chapters 15 to Genesis uh, chapter 20, 21. Um, it's about the 19th or 20th century BC, about 4,000 years ago, give or take um, there. Um, 
There's a guy in, in here uh, getting ready on, on the scene. His name is Abraham. Abraham is a, is a prominent figure of the, of the scripture, the Bible. And uh, so God approaches Abraham and he tells Abraham, Abraham, um, through your offspring, through your children, there's going to be a, 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 many nations are going to be blessed through you. I'm going to use you and, and your family and it's going to be, I'm going to do amazing things. You and your wife, and you look up in the stars of the sky, you can't even count how many stars, that's how many people are going to be um, through through you. And Abraham, you know, listens to God, and he's like, yeah, God, I, I, I believe you. And then he, uh, God tells Abraham to leave his country, what everything he knows, to go to the, to the, the place I'm going to prepare for you. Um, and here's the crazy thing. So God makes that promise to Abraham, and multiple years go by, and Abraham and his wife have no kids. Abraham and his wife aren't able to have children. And so many, many years go by and still no kids. And Abraham's thinking, well, God said I'm supposed to be the father of the nations. And um, I have no offspring. So Abraham and his wife, Sarah, take matters into their own hands, thinking, well, maybe, maybe God didn't really... You know, what God said wasn't necessarily right. So we're going to have, Abraham, why don't you sleep with um, your wife Sarah's uh, uh, slave helper, Hagar. And so Abraham goes, okay. And they, they do, and they have kids. And um, that wasn't the right thing to do because then that just created more craziness. And, if you re- and I encourage you, go back and read the story. You'll see that that was not a, a, clean, um, a clean break there. And so, um, but the crazy thing is God does not give up on Abraham. He still uses him. And so Abraham um, is now 100 years old. His wife Sarah is 90. That's when they find out Sarah's pregnant for the first time. 90 years old. Can you imagine? That's crazy. To us in 21st century America, like, that's not the right time to start having kids. 90. Um, but that's, what, that's, how, that's how God used it. So when, 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 uh, when it first happened, when God went to Abraham and said, I'm going to bless you, through, many nations are going to be through you, it was a 25-year span. So Abraham waited 25 years. That's a long time to wait. So Abraham and his wife have a son. Um, his name is Isaac. I, the name Isaac means laughter. So when Abraham and Sarah found out they're going to have a son in their old age, a very fitting, right? They laughed. Um, so if, you're, if your name is Isaac, you know that your name means laughter. Um, so Abraham and Sarah, they wanted a child, which was a good thing, right? They wanted a child. It was a good thing. Abraham and Sarah, they got a child, um, which is a very good thing. So this was a good thing, and God is going to see if this child is the ultimate thing in their life. But before we go any further, before we unpack the scripture that we're going to look at today, I, you just need to know, like, what we're reading is going to, it's going to, you're going to go, I don't, I don't, why, I don't, how does this fit in the Bible? I'm not sure how it all fits together, but just hang, hang with me, and I want you to just to stare at the scriptures. Allow the scriptures to pop, and we're going to see how this passage of scripture completely uh, uh, um, connects to what God's ultimate plan is. Before we go into any more, let's, let's just pray as we get ready to open the, the scripture together. Father, I thank you so much for this, uh, this passage of scripture. God, allow it as we, as we read it and we learn about Abraham and Isaac and this, this, this march that they take um, and just how, how you are 
in and through this whole thing. God, I pray that we can just allow the scripture to pop in our, in our hearts today and what we learn, we can then just allow it to penetrate in the relationships we come in contact with uh, this week. In your name, amen. All right, so if you're in Genesis 22, we're gonna look at the first uh, couple verses here. So we set the stage. So Abraham, Isaac. All right, so Genesis chapter 22, verse one. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. So God wanted to know if this good thing had become the ultimate thing in Abraham's life. And us here in 21st century America, we're going, sacrifice your son? That's... That's really weird. And, it, and, it, and if it's the first time you've ever heard that, you're like, that's, that's crazy. But what we need to know, the context of the scriptures that we're reading here today, it was not unusual in that day for child sacrifice to the gods. And so, like that was, to us, we're thinking, that's just crazy, who does that? But in this, this time frame, it was not that unusual. I mean, it was still crazy, don't, don't get me wrong, don't think that that was a normal uh, thing, but it wasn't unusual. So, Abraham, are you willing to give up this very good thing, Isaac, and trust and listen to me, God, as the ultimate thing in your life? God's testing Abraham here to see if Isaac, his son, had become his God. Has this good thing become the ultimate thing in, in your life, Abraham? Now, it happens, it happens slowly, like this this. You know, when people become gods in our life. It's, it's subtle. So think about us, you, what, we, what we're saying here. So people become my God when I expect them to satisfy all my needs. People become my God when their applause is what matters most. I care about what people think of me. People become my God when I ignore or change what God says to keep the relationship. People become my God when my identity is wrapped up in their success or failure. When I don't surrender my relationships to God, people end up becoming my God. When I don't surrender my relationships to God, people end up becoming my God. My kid becomes my God when. My need to be liked by them supersedes my willingness to lead them. My kid, kids become my God when my identity is wrapped up in their success. My kids become my God as I'm devastated by their failures. My kids become my gods when I think they can do no wrong and when anybody insinuates they are, I get defensive. My kids become my gods when I set God on the back burner to pursue a busy life shopping for my child's God. My kid becomes my God when the most important thing is that people are impressed with my kid. My kid becomes my God when I give them whatever they want, even if I, I know it's not the wisest thing. We live in a culture that idolizes children. We just do. And so you talk to parents, talk to grandparents, like we idolize children. Obviously, what I'm not saying here is 
Like, we need to be for our kids. Like, we're, we're applauding our kids. What I'm saying here is, is that when we care so much about our kids' success that it supersedes everything else in our lives. My spouse can become my God when I expect them to meet all my needs. My spouse becomes my God when what I want from them is more important than what God wants for them. My spouse becomes my God when I'm disappointed if we do not have the perfect marriage. And my spouse becomes my God when I expect them to fill the emptiness in my soul and bring meaning to my life. So it's so easy to, to lean on our spouse to meet all of our needs, thinking I, I need to have that relationship. And then when I'm going through hard times, like only my wife or only my husband can, can help me. But that's, that's not the case. My friendships can become my God when the voices of my friends become more prominent than the voice of God. I, I go to my friends first and foremost before I ever, ever go to the scriptures or, or pray. My friendships become my God when my identity is wrapped up in how many likes or comments are on my social media. Talk to any, anybody in uh, the, the teenage realm that's so prevalent. I post a picture on my Instagram. How many people are liking it? How many comments do I get? And, and I just want to throw teenagers in here. It's us as adults, too. You know, we post things on Facebook. How many people are, are liking what we post or commenting? Like we, you know, how much comments are there? We, we care so much about what other people think. And, that's, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, okay? It's, it's okay to have that. But they become my God when our identity is wrapped up in how many comments or likes are there. My friends just become my God when I will do anything to keep my friends, even if that means ignoring God. Like, you know what you're doing is wrong, and you're like, man, I know that, that, that I, pursuing this is not a good thing, but if I go this direction, my fr- I'm going to lose my friends. But if we care more about losing our, you know, keeping our friends and pursuing God, we've got to start realizing, okay, what's the most important thing in my life? Is it my friends or, or God? Or I will do anything to have friends, even if that means ignoring God. My boyfriend or girlfriend come, become my God when my need to have one becomes the ultimate thing in my life. Breaking up devastates me or paralyzes me. My boyfriend or girlfriend can become my God when I will do anything to keep mine, even if that means changing or altering what God says. Well, did God really say, you know, dot, dot, dot? What, what does God say? And and let that be a priority. So when those relationships become the first and most important love and relationship in my life, I love them less. And in the end, because when people become my God, I end up sacrificing them on an altar of my expectations. When people become my God, I end up sacrificing them on an altar of my expectations. And here's the thing, if, if we... If we have that mentality, when we think that people are going to, you know, like people can, can help us in, in all areas of our life, um, our expectations are going to crush people, and they do. People in my life will get crushed under the weight of my expectations. Husbands will be crushed under the weight of a wife's expectation, and, and vice versa, if, if, all we, if, if we live for that. Um... Children will be crushed under the expectation of parents who need our kids to succeed so they feel better about themselves. We need to live our lives through our kids. Come on, kids, you've got to do good. If you don't do good, um, 
I'm, 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 a, I'm as a, a parent just going to be like, oh, or if, if my kid feels, oh, I'm a failure. No, you're not. Every, every child is, his own, is he or she's own person. We, we as parents have to coach them. And when, they, when our kids fall, it is not a reflection on bad parenting. Okay, don't, don't throw yourself under the bus. But say, okay, the, our, ch- our children are sinners just like we are, and how can we, how can we help them through tough times? Friendships will cave because they were never meant to carry the kind of weight, thinking that I need a, a good friendships in my life that can, can take on every, everything. And no, don't hear me say we need friendships. That's, that's, friendships are good things. But when they become the ultimate thing, that's when we have to evaluate. So I will, re, I will expect my relationships to deliver what they cannot in my life. I will need them to feed in my life what they are not able to. My expectations will become premeditated disappointments. My expectations will become premeditated disappointments. So what's the solution? Right? So we, we've kind of given out the problem. Like there, there, we, okay, we, we know that if, if relationships get put in our life, and that's a good thing, but when those relationships can become the ultimate thing and, they, and it gets whoppy-jawed of, you know, what's the most important thing? Loving God, loving others as opposed to loving others and loving God. So we're going we're gonna to look at this story, and, um, and it's hidden in the middle of this story. And I, and I know this story seems weird and crazy, so we just need to, need to stare at it, all right? So you to look at it close, and then uh, we're going to see how God uses this story and how he connects it to um, the, the story of the Scripture, the, the historical story. All right. So, continuing on, chapter 22, verse 3. So, Isaac and Abraham. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And we had cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. So, little dad, uh, father-son, bonding time. Um, can you imagine the conversation that took place during that three-day journey? So you have Abraham who knows the, what's going to happen here. And Isaac doesn't, you know, not really sure what's going on here. And you have these two servants that are oblivious to what's happening. Uh, so they're, they're going on this, this trip. Um, and I can't imagine that Father Abraham had much sleep during this trip. He's just thinking about, oh my goodness, God wants me to sacrifice my son in an altar. Um, all right, so next verse here. So he said to his servants, Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, then we will come, come back to you. So you get an idea of what Abraham was thinking. Um, he trusted God, and, and there's a, a hint that maybe Abraham believed that at worst God could and would bring Isaac back to life after the sacrifice but he had the servants kind of stay off to the side so what was about ready to happen would just be a moment between God, his son um, and that was going to be the audience. Alright, so um, verse 6 Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, um, my son. Now, here's the, the thing to remember. That's a great question that Isaac asked, is it not? I mean, think about this. You're, go, you're traveling with your dad, and Isaac had seen sacrifices before, and he knew sacrifices um, involved um, usually a, a lamb or, or another animal. And so Isaac's like, you know, firewood check, um, uh, fire starter check, uh, sacrifice. Dad, sacrifice. Um, Abraham answered, verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. My son. Abraham totally trusted God would provide. Totally trusted that. So, and the two of them went on together. Verse 9. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I just can't imagine. Like, okay, so here's the altar. He's laying his son on there. And then uh, verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. And I can only imagine Isaac's like, uh, Dad, a cool bonding trip. Um, extreme adventure, but can we be done with this? I mean, this is, this is way too extreme for me. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Whew. Could you, oh my. I mean, Abraham, you know, dropped the knife and oh my goodness. So now all of a sudden, God, God uh, saved his son. Now I know this good thing is not ultimate because you have surrendered this good thing to the one who is ultimate in your life. Whew. Maybe you're wondering, why is this story in the Bible? Are we to go and do likewise? No. No. This story provides an incredible picture of something bigger and more profound that would happen a couple thousand years later. So I want you to so, so kind of stare at this story, okay? What's, what's taking place here? So now we're going to look at verse 13. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So stare at this scripture, and all of a sudden, this picture is going to appear because a son of Abraham would eventually be sacrificed. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 27, it says, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the, the skull up on the hill. So there on the mountain, God would sacrifice his son, Jesus. You know why God would do that? This is why. God is preoccupied with you. God is pursuing you. He died to have a relationship with you. He went to the ultimate length to make that possible. When I embrace God's sacrifice for me, I'm free to surrender my relationships to him. 
when I embrace God's sacrifice for me, knowing, okay, Jesus died on the cross for me. I, I can do nothing. I can just accept that. And then I'm free to surrender my relationship to him, knowing that as a father, I, I cannot give I cannot be the God for my son that he needs. Only, only Jesus Christ can be the Lord of his life. I don't need my wife to satisfy all my needs. Friends don't validate or identif- identify who I am. My kids' success and failure won't define me. I can trust that what God says um, to direct my relationships. When I embrace his sacrifice for me, I am secure in who I am and I am satisfied in whose I am so I'm free to surrender my relationships to God. And my love for God is a response to his love for me and when I experience that, I then am free to extend it. So when I understand God's love for me and what he's done for me and his his sacrifice for me, then I am free to extend that love to other people and not looking to other people to, to be that thing that only God can provide, that, that goal. So, in closing, knowing this, knowing what Jesus has done on the cross for, for all of us, when we think about our relationships, know this, I am free to love my wife more, I am free to love my children more, and I'm free to love my friends more. Let's pray together.